Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you think promising to be back in black in a budgetary sense is dumb? I think the promise that was made in terms of back in black was made at the time when you were looking at you know, the immediate budget years. But I, I but I but in terms of the question I think I think um, we all have to be cautious about how much we bake in promises dependent upon medium and long-term forecasts and projections. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, and we are within days now of the most exciting day of the year. <laughs> Simon Birmingham is smiling. But, oh no, he's laughing now. Uh, no, we are in with uh, we are we're within sight of the federal budget next Tuesday, and. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that uh, Shane Wright, uh, Greg Jericho and myself hashed over various probabilities last week in the podcave. But uh, uh, rather than speculating, we've got the newsmaker with us this week, Simon Birmingham, uh, who is the finance minister, uh, and he's dropped in for a chat. Hello, Simon. Welcome. Hi, Catherine. Great to be with you. And yes, indeed. I don't know whether it's the biggest day in everybody's life, but it's certainly a big day for the Treasurer and for the finance minister and you know, charts, obviously, the agenda of the government, not just for the next year, but well beyond. No, exactly. It is important, uh, which is why we're only joshing slightly. Um, now, finance for you... Um, is a new job, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, that you were you were previously uh, the trade minister, uh, Matthias Corman, who occupied the finance portfolio for seemingly 38 years, has now ascended uh, in the direction of his uh, job at the OECD, uh, and you are the finance minister. So I'm just going to start with that. It's a new job. It is a new job, and uh, it's a pretty uh, incredible and challenging time to step into the job to. Uh, be taking it on uh, in the midst still of responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, hot on the heels of the first recession that Australia's faced in 30 years, uh, with a budget position that is wildly different to uh, to anything that we had contemplated over the last few years and all of those uncertainties, along with, in this budget, really the, the need as well to focus on a number of the other longer-term pressure points in the budget and to uh, address those and guarantee we're getting on with delivering the services Australians want while keeping them safe from COVID, while keeping the economic recovery going, while keeping the jobs growth going. And so there's a lot of moving pieces. Exactly. And we're going to get into all that, but um, but just sticking with the job, and this might seem an odd question, but I'm, I'm genuinely interested. How do you prepare 
or is is preparation a sort of stupid question to ask as a, a person who is as busy as you? It'd be sort of like if someone asked me, how do you prepare to do that? I would laugh because where would the extra hours in the day come from? But I'm genuinely interested, right? You've this is this is a key portfolio in any government, and we've seen some very um, formidable political figures come through the finance portfolio in the twenty something years I've been in the building. So how do you prepare, or does does events basically preclude you from preparing for a transition like this? I think it's the preparation of life and the preparation of career. And you know, I come in that sense having had the benefit of being a cabinet minister across a couple of different but busy portfolios previously in education and in trade, uh, having served previously as a member of the Expenditure Review Committee of Cabinet. And uh, some of that background all helps to at least have a sense of what you're stepping into. Um, the uh, the preparation for a budget like this one is uh, is I guess you know, very much the uh, the scan of the landscape um, at the earliest possible stages and a lot of time uh, between the prime minister, the treasurer, and myself uh, canvassing you know, what those pressure points and issues we think we're going to face in the budget are, and that conversation you know, really starts uh, at the back end of the year before the budget and continues the whole way through. And in this case, we're probably looking at an environment where there's more uncertainty as we hand down the budget in the in the global COVID context around you know, outbreaks such as the tragedy in India, around the vaccine rollout, not just in Australia, but in many other countries of the world. Uh, and in that, um, you know, that's quite different to even how people thought the landscape would be mm. just a few months ago. So um, yes, there's the best of preparations, um, but then there is, uh, of course, responding to events. And uh, well, you just need to get on with it, really, don't you? Oh, there's 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 always a deadline for the budget. You know, once mm. uh, once the day is there, everybody just has to work yeah, towards work that. Towards that. Um, but you've got to keep an eye to the long term. Yes, the budget has those short term essentials that you have to deal with in terms of pressure points. Um, but you know, the decisions you're making, particularly in areas like responding to an aged care royal commission decisions that will have impacts for years and decades mm. to come, mm. just as uh, just as indeed the work to drive the economy and create jobs has impacts on the individual lives of Australians for years and decades to come. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you, rage, you, you raised aged care because I, I sort of want to start, because we'll track towards the budget and expectations around what we might see next week. Uh, the Treasurer, um, I say this in the kindest possible way, has congratulated himself amply um, in recent times for getting through COVID without without building in a lot of structural spending into the budget. There was obviously a, a massive fiscal response, a bigger fiscal response than I've ever seen in my reporting lifetime, rolled out during the pandemic. But a lot of it was uh, what is a wash through the budget scenario rather than a structural spend. But when we look at the sort of um, the build up to the budget, as you've said, aged care, mental health, uh, all really important social services for Australia, there you're getting into structural spending territory, right? You're building in spending over a longer term horizon. So, just looking at what the budget is going to set up, because you've correctly framed this as not just one day, you know, Tuesday in May, but setting up something for decades hence, Ryan. Um, how much structural 
spending are we going to see baked into this budget? I don't mean a dollar figure. I mean, how much of that are we going to see? Or thinking about things like aged care, for example, there has been some discussion, for example, about uh, reserving the increase in the superannuation guarantee to fund aged care. So more user pays, but sort of um, using elements of the the retirement system in order to fund aged care. So I know this is a big question. It's It's sort of a ridiculously large question, but where is the budget going to sit in terms of uh, structural spending, um, spending that the taxpayers pick up in terms of revenue that that flows through into programs, user pays, other options? Where will where, where will all those balances sit? Yeah, and there's there's a lot of balances in that, and uh, and you fall back first and foremost on the principles that you have as a government that uh, that you think people have voted for you on and expect you to deliver against. And so in those, it is that uh, for us, uh, spending only what is necessary uh, and doing so uh, with a firm eye to how you guarantee the quality and effectiveness of it is important, which is why during the pandemic, the principles around ensuring that initial responses to it uh, and continuing responses to it are temporary, they're targeted, they're proportionate, That's been the mantra from day one of uh, of response to COVID. It continues to be the case and will have to be the case as we keep dealing with those COVID uncertainties and uh, and maintain uh, the confidence and strength that we've seen in the economy recently. But it's a confidence and strength that is set against a landscape of great global uncertainty, of risk of outbreaks, uh, of challenges around vaccines, of all of those factors that require continued investment in the economic strength. Uh, because that is then what is going to provide the best basis for us to be able to fund and deliver the essential services that do have longer-term cost implications. So if you go back to the last election, the Prime Minister said time and time again during that campaign that you needed a strong economy to deliver jobs for Australians and the essential services they rely upon. And that is still the core focus here, that uh, that, uh, we don't find means to pay for those essential services uh, without having a strong economy that has Australians in jobs, that creates the virtuous cycle where uh, you actually get, for every Australian who comes off of welfare and goes into the workforce, you've got reduced payments going out, more taxes coming in, stronger business returns that provide for higher company tax rates and so, higher company tax returns and so on as well, all of which are uh, how you can fund key services. Yeah. No, I totally get you've got to run the economy hotter. I mean, this is very crude analogies, but you've got to run the economy hotter, both because we're in a, we sort of, we're in a manufactured recession in the sense of a government induced recession because uh, for public health reasons and the government is, there's still a lot of stimulus in the economy. And, and, uh, and what you're saying is you need a strong economy. You need an expansionary fiscal policy to under, underpin that for the moment. Right. But and then revenue is produced in order to fund services. But like aged care, let me draw you again on that superannuation point. Is that something that we might see in the budget where, uh, where as well as stumping up X billion for aged care over the next 11 decades, because it's important that then we might see some policy around user pays or some like is is it all just dollars going out or or is there are there other mechanisms that so so as as a government again framed by those principles a core one for us is to be 
a low taxing government and uh, and we have sought to drive and deliver that in terms of reduced income tax uh, uh, rates and reforms which right now are providing a couple of billion dollars a month back into the pockets of Australians again underpinning that economic recovery uh, and we don't want to and don't intend to jeopardize the recovery or the confidence of Australian consumers or businesses uh, by going down the path of additional taxes, levies, charges or otherwise. So so no levy to fund so, aged care. So yeah. Instead, uh, making the spending decisions on the basis of looking at the long-term projections you've got in the budget and having the confidence that you are going to be able to drive the growth uh, to be able to uh, fund those sorts of decisions over a period of time. And, uh, and that has clearly been what okay, a hard processes we've been going through. The stronger economic recovery that we've had to date obviously improves many of the uh, the factors and forecasts as uh, as has been outlined publicly. We will um, see in 2020-2021 a lower than expected um, budget deficit uh, because we've seen uh, more Australians in jobs, paying taxes, lower drain and expectations in relation to costs around JobKeeper and JobSeeker recipients uh, and all of that, uh, of course, putting us in a position then when you look forward at future projections of growth uh, to ideally be able to make what we think are cautious and sensible decisions that are still uh, necessary to respond to uh, not just the report of the Royal Commission into aged care, but what Australians actually expect to receive in terms of high quality services in those social sectors. services yeah so um so uh, no levies um no taxes um but you you haven't answered me on user pays is user pays part of the equation or or is are we just looking at dollars going out the door which i'm sounding pejorative which i don't actually mean pejoratively at all i'm just uh, i'm trying to conceptualize because in mm. your position in the finance minister's spot um you're, you're the guy who has to monitor the dollars going out the door, yep. to put it no. bluntly, right? And this appears to be quite a big spending budget. I'm just I'm wondering in my own mind, because obviously I haven't seen the document yet, whether this is actually a big spending budget or whether we will see um, additional mechanisms other than spending in order to fund social services. There are elements clearly that I'll be uh, more at liberty to talk about after next Tuesday than I am before Mildly next Tuesday. Yes, anyway. um, and so that's always the, the challenge of doing interviews pre-budget. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, if you look at the aged care system in its current construct, there are already consumer contributions yes. that, uh, that are made. So people do make contributions towards residential aged care. They do uh, they do face in certain areas contributions towards uh, home care arrangements, and so it's been uh, a key part uh, of uh, of Australia's system to date. Absolutely. Just as in other ways, what works well for Australia is the fact that uh, that government support and services uh, operate in an environment of effective means testing, uh, of ensuring that we are able to target support uh, to those who ideally need it most, and by targeting. Uh, in those sorts of ways, it enables us to keep taxes as low as possible as well and uh, and underpin that economic strength across uh, across the economy. Mm. Uh, we'll have a comprehensive response to the Aged Care Royal Commission. Um, uh, it, as I said, will be true to our principles in terms of keeping um, costs, levies, taxes uh, low across, uh, across government. 
uh, but still delivering on those services. And yes, as finance minister, I've had to look very carefully at uh, at what spending projections mean for the future. Uh, but we do that in the full context of uh, of the overall economic projections and uh, and how we see the ability to be able to fund those services to have a long-term trajectory towards budget repair once we've got uh, sufficient economic strength post the recession and uh, and post covid um, and uh, and in a sense in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the costs of deficits at present to also you know, fully appreciate that you know, we're operating in a very low interest rate environment where despite uh, the growth in debt, which we take seriously, the cost of servicing that debt right now is actually less than it was a couple of years ago. And growth, if, if there's enough growth in the system too, that, that reduces the size of the debt relative to the, to the economy. That's another factor as well as low borrowing costs. Uh, uh, they're the important factors that, again, the budget will outline some of those projections around debt as a proportion of GDP and uh, and the way in which uh, um, the recovery that's underway and the forecasts um, if you look at what's publicly available from the Reserve Bank, their optimism about where they see unemployment getting to uh, and the continued strength they see in the Australian economy, they become factors that help to drive a stronger budget position that enables you to fund these sorts of services. Mm, sure. Um, are we likely, I mean, debt, uh, just moving from debt to deficit quickly, I mean, if you run the economy hot enough, are we likely to see some sort of track back to surplus over the forward estimates or is it beyond the forward estimates? Like I'm thinking about year four, do we, are we balanced or close to balance? Like is that ridiculous or is that actually possible? People, yeah, people shouldn't be uh, uh, building up too many expectations whilst we're still dealing with the COVID situation and seeing a you know, rapid, uh, rapid like no. return in terms of, uh, of budget <laughs> balance. Like no, no to balance in the in year four. If you look at the budget projections that were outlined in the budget last year, in my EFO at the end of last year, they still show continued deficits running out over a significant period of time. We've got all the uncertainties I said before around COVID, and we need to invest to maintain confidence, and we need businesses across Australia to invest to maintain confidence in the economy whilst we're dealing with those COVID uncertainties and we're making these sorts of decisions in relation to the way in which we support and fund services for the future. So uh, it's a challenging fiscal environment and it remains quite challenging and it's why each of these decisions has to be weighed very carefully. Mm, sounds like no. <laughs> well, again, I'm not going to give uh, give full speculation no. in terms of uh, what the budget bottom line will say, um, uh, but uh, you know, these these are difficult circumstances in which to, uh, to um, run a budget that keeps the economy strong in the face of uncertainty and starts to, uh, to deliver uh, even more in terms of the services Australians expect. Will there be any substantial savings measures in this budget? Any at all? We're always looking for ensuring spending is of, uh, of appropriate quality. And so you know, that's a, a constant process across every portfolio and uh, and. Oftentimes, it's uh, you know, the best saving is the dollar that you haven't spent um, uh, because you've been able to identify ways to achieve outcomes more efficiently or more cost effectively. But sometimes there are opportunities for uh, uh, for savings. Uh, as a government, though, you know, we've worked pretty hard over a long period of time uh, to ensure there's efficiency across the public service and across spending programs. And we'll keep reinvesting in terms of finding 
new ways to achieve that efficiency. And today's announcement by the Prime Minister in the digital economy strategy that sees uh, investments in some of the uh, systems that run MyGov and health records for Australians ultimately help to drive further efficiencies. Mm, create uh, efficiency. you know, they take time to be realised and they often require upfront efficiencies, but uh, um, many of the systems we have invested in in recent years, for example, in the social services space, uh, are starting to see you know, reduced foot traffic into uh, Centrelink sites around the country uh, as people are now better able more easily to engage in the online systems uh, to update their information and, uh, and require... Uh, less of that face-to-face contact. So these are things you invest in today to yield sometimes dividends quite some time into the future. Oh, no, no. And and all of that tech, you know, sitting behind the government, some of it's so antiquated, it's, you know, it's practically non-functional. So it's good. It's good to see those investments. Um, But so... uh, you, you might get better looking numbers through efficiencies, but we're not in a, a sorry, I'll frame this as a question rather than a statement. We're not in a normal, um, <laughs> you know, outside COVID budget round where people have to offset expenditure. So this, the, hence my question, it's sort of like, is there, I mean, I don't know how many budgets I've covered where there might be a billion dollars booked to uh, you know, efficiencies in data matching, for example, or, you know, those sort of savings. Are we likely to see any of that in the budget? I'm not asking you to give me a measure because you obviously can't do that. I'm, again, I'm just for the listeners trying to frame expectations ahead of next week. So are we likely to see anything like that? We've certainly looked for savings where we can and where it's economically responsible to do so and consistent with the delivery of the services that we want. And so it's not it's not completely bereft of, uh, of savings. You would expect governments as you make decisions to prioritise along the way. Um, but you know, we're also a government that got ourselves in the position of a budget balance pre-COVID um, because of responsible spending decisions that had shown restraint, had made some savings along the way, uh, but overwhelmingly as well because of the fact that we'd achieved a position of welfare dependency uh, at some of its lowest levels, workforce participation at the highest possible levels. And even in this budget, you can see the benefits coming through from that, that uh, with an extra 200,000 Australians in work relative to uh, to what had previously been forecast, that means our payments are down by $3 billion. Our tax revenues are up by $2 billion. Uh, and that's uh, that's ultimately how you achieve the sustainable strength in the budget uh, for the long term. Mm. Back to surpluses in the out years, which I guarantee I'm not obsessed with, because I think one of the hel- one of the one of the good things about um, you know this this sort of terrible shock that's been visited on the world in terms of the pandemic and the aftermath is that we're having a more sensible conversation about debt and deficit. Uh, you know, in the olden times, in your own the life of your own government. We had hysterical budget emergencies and all kinds of stuff that happened. I'm not inviting you to comment on that, but it really was hysterical and hyperbolic. Now we're, now we're in a sort of more, um, well, what I would call fact-based conversation about debt and deficit and the sustainability of budgets, right? But obviously you're Mr. No in the government. You are the finance minister. That's the role you play. You're, you're the guy who has to turn down the spending proposals or furrow your brow or whatever, send the colleagues packing. That's part of the role, right? So, but in terms of um, back in black promises, right, we've seen Wayne Swan you know, uh, said, oh, we're back to, we'll be back in surplus rolling out of the GFC. And it didn't happen. 
and it was problematic for Labor politically. Uh, your own government said, we're back in black, you were in balance, but obviously then COVID hit. I'm not blaming you for COVID, but I'm just saying, right, everybody gets impaled on their promises eventually, right? Do you think promising to be back in black in a budgetary sense or a surplus in a particular year or something of that nature is dumb? I think the promise that uh, that was made in terms of back in black was made at the time when you were looking at you know, the immediate budget years. No, no, I know. It no, wasn't, no, I'm not spearing you for it. I mean, events, no, no, events, no, 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 I'm not spearing you for that. I, but I'm, in terms of the question, him, yeah. I think, I think um, we all have to be cautious about you know, how much we bake in you know, promises dependent upon medium and long-term forecasts and projections. You know, that is obviously ripe with uncertainty. Um, people expect once we're forecasting the next year or two in normal times for us to have, you know, barring extreme global events, a fair degree of certainty around uh, around you know, what you're going to actually be able to deliver as a government over that one or two year um, uh, time period. And so um, you know, I think actually, yes, you know, throughout the life of our government, uh, we had up until the pandemic a firm focus on budget repair, but we were always cautious in terms of the final declaration of when the budget would go to surplus until we were within that one to two year horizon of seeing uh, seeing a surplus. And we did hand down effectively a balanced budget that then had credible yeah, sur- yeah, surpluses yeah. Like forecast. I'm not, it's, I'm not, I'm not being passive aggressive. No, 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 no I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Yeah, but right. no, we're, we're, we're now in a situation where um, we're to put a timetable clearly in terms of um, what you're going to, you know, the year in which you might hit surplus, I think people would question, you know, is that really credible given all of the uncertainties you're currently dealing with and given the many steps that uh, that will have to be made to get back to that point. But it doesn't mean that it isn't important to strive to get back mm. to that oh, point. No, no, I'm not At the right time it yeah. will be because mm. you know, Australia's relative position to the rest of the world has held us in good stead through COVID. And the confidence that bond markets have uh, to uh, to invest in Australia and to support uh, the revenue raising in Australia uh, is something that is partly underpinned by the fact that you know we have AAA credit ratings, that we have low debt relative to other countries, and that despite um, the huge outlays we've made, we maintain those projections of lower debt relative to other nations. It also enables us to come through um, this recovery period without having to um, to pursue higher taxes that can impede the recovery, uh, which in other uh, countries, including other developed countries, you're seeing governments having to hike back up taxes, which you know, will hit confidence and will risk stalling parts of the recovery in that regard. But I just, I guess, um, I think you've answered it just more politely than than words I would pick. I think you are basically telling me politely that it is, that it is dumb, really, in the current environment to make any sort of a promise that you could subsequently be impaled upon. Um, but is that, um, look, we, again, stupid question to ask because I'm not asking you to reveal confidences, even though I'm going to bowl this question up in that frame. Is that a political conversation that the government has been cognizant about? It's just, it's just very striking to me because I've lived through the GFC in the aftermath. I've lived through the back in black period, which then COVID smacked us. It, it just strikes me that these promises are diabolically bad for whomever makes them, right? So, 
yeah. which you know, which is the point I was making before is why I think we were quite cautious through all of those uh, years under uh, under um, uh, of uh, early period in government in terms of setting a hard concrete year and marker as to when it would be achieved. We knew it would be a hard slog and that it could be beset by uncertainties. Uh, but if a, if a once-in-a-century global pandemic doesn't change, indeed, um, things dramatically, uh, then potentially nothing will, and it certainly has changed things dramatically, and it does, uh, does put us in a position where uh, you know, we have to be uh, honest about the uncertainties that, uh, that we face. Um, yeah, I think we laid out very clearly in last year's budget and the mid-year update uh, a couple of months later uh, that um, yeah, the fiscal strategy uh, was stage one, continued economic recovery, jobs recovery, and driving uh, the unemployment rate uh, towards those theoretical levels of full employment. Stage two would then be about how you achieved fiscal repair once you'd achieved stage one. Um, Nothing has changed really in terms of, uh, of the type of strategy as uh, Josh outlined in, uh, in his fiscal speech last week. Uh, we're still really working to, towards the stage one objectives. They're going much better than we had projected or, or that uh, the economic commentators had anticipated, um, uh, but yeah, they're by no means baked, done and dusted and able to be relied upon. Uh, we have to keep working at stage one, uh, particularly now you've got the Reserve Bank and Treasury reassessing where they see that level of full employment and necessitating us to push you know, a bit harder towards that theoretical level too. One more budget question before we go to your your parliamentary staff responsibilities. Um, you make it two or three if you like. <laughs> You're going to enjoy it that much. Um, no, no. Um, uh, I'm interested um, just picking up... Um, on the on this idea about promising and signalling on budget repair, uh, obviously the coalition's constituency. I mean, there's a reason why we had the hype, the the hyperbole um, of the Abbott era in terms of budget emergencies and so on. You are appealing to your core, to your base, to your to your core constituency who thinks that budget repair is important. Uh, so, how do you think how because you've done this amazing shape shift, right, during the pandemic. I mean, I'm, I'm not sort of being pantomimish about that because you, you did what the country required. You did what was in the interests of the, of, of the economy and people. But if you think about the plot line from Tony Abbott to Scott Morrison standing up in the courtyard spending 10 billion bucks a week or whatever, that's quite a, that's quite a trajectory, right? How are your constituency, your base dealing with the idea that uh, you very sensibly in this conversation say we've got to put, you know, we, we can't put hard promises on a return to surplus because of conditions and we've got to run the economy hard and we've got to pay for services and all that sort of stuff. Are they, are they, are they still, how are they going with that in terms of that shape shift? I think what, uh, you know, what we will be, Seeking to drive home out of uh, out of the budget and the policies we're rolling out in the period beyond is still the message of responsibility, responsibility in the decisions we've made to keep people's jobs safe and secure, to keep the economy safe and secure, and to keep them safe in uh, in a health context as well. Uh, but uh, but also the responsibility around the quantum and quality of spend that we seek to uh, to make as well. And in that, I think we will still see quite a strong contrast when it comes to 
the next election. I've seen some of the commentary that Anthony Albanese is going to try to uh, create himself as an economic conservative. spending must stop. Um, Mm. I'm yet to see an area in which he's proposing that we reduce our spending rather than spend more uh, at each step in relation to JobKeeper. The opposition was predicting doom and gloom and saying we should spend more, and yet the evidence seems to indicate that uh, we have managed that transition down and out of JobKeeper quite successfully and uh, and without the type of catastrophe that was forecast. Uh, although Labor has a pretty bare policy cupboard to date, give them credit, they do have um, some policies out there on childcare, and of course we've announced some policies on childcare in relation to the next budget. And again, there's a stark and striking contrast between the Coalition and the Labor Party. We have outlined policies on childcare uh, that are carefully targeted and proportionate to what we see as the challenges the system faces, which is how do we support those Australian families where there is a clear barrier in the cost of childcare to access um, the choice of going back into the workforce or working more hours. And we're doing that through two key measures, abolishing the cap that acts as an impediment to some in working a third or fourth day, and increasing support in relation to a second child uh, in childcare for those who see that as a real barrier. Labor's proposal, spending many billions of dollars extra uh, than us, is of course to actually increase the rate of subsidy dramatically to families on the highest income. High income families for whom the cost of childcare is far less likely to be a barrier to making those choices around workforce participation. And so I think the quality versus the recklessness of spending will remain very much a coalition versus Mm. a Labor proposition going into the next election. And I'll be very surprised if Anthony Albanese's policies can live up to today's thought bubble rhetoric uh, around economic conservatism. Mm, Yeah, I'm quite interested in that. I mean, obviously you would say that, Simon, you would say that there is a, that there is a, uh, still a sharp contrast between you and your political opponents in terms of quality of spending, right? Of course, you would say that. I haven't really thought about it, so uh, maybe you're right. But I think that I think that sort of um, that that contest closes, though, if you're both in territory where um, you're both recognising that services funding services is important. Um, Anyway, I think that's a watch this space that you and I might actually return to as the election gets closer because I'm sort of quite interested in that conceptually. But anyway, I don't want to bog us down. Um, uh, Staff, I know you're thrilled, but we've got to do staff Um, because that's obviously an important part of the finance minister's responsibilities. They're serious issues. Yeah, well, they they are serious issues. And uh, I think you and I would agree that neither of us have lived like lived through a few months like the last few months have been in this building. I think we'd be a unity to get on that. Yeah, look, at uh, they were uh, an incredibly challenging period of time and um, I, I think you know, at a couple of levels I found it most challenging. One one was clearly you know, the individual cases and, and knowing some of the terrible things that, uh, that people had gone through uh, and had not necessarily felt that they had the support uh, to be able to address and respond to in the way that they should. Then the other is also the the broader ramifications that uh, that are an image and a perception of, uh, of the workplace and environment being created that then reflects so challengingly on everybody else coming to work uh, and that at, at some of those real crisis points, you you had people who should be proud to work in the Parliament of Australia probably feeling 
dispirited, despondent, oh. and maybe even ashamed at turning up no, to work. Completely. And, uh, yeah. uh, and so making sure that the, the settings and the standards and the, um, and the protections uh, that we have in place uh, into the future are such that, uh, that we um, give everybody the workplace that they should have but also create an environment where we can attract the best and brightest to work here mm. and, uh, and that they have pride in doing so are, are very important ambitions to me and, uh, and, uh, and I think ambitions that I, that I genuinely shared across the political divide when I, uh, when I speak with uh, colleagues as I have in consulting on how we respond to some of these issues. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, and I think that is a, that's a useful point to make because it's been a bit obscured. I think the, there are um, the, the sort of there's been different distress levels in the building that there've been the, the distress levels of people who have uh, who have had terrible experiences and are either prepared to talk about them or not, uh, and then there's the distress level of people who have not had terrible experience and have not perpetrated any improper behaviour on anyone, and are dealing with feelings of isolation isolation and shame and embarrassment at uh, being being perceived in a workplace that you know the Australian public now considers entirely dysfunctional. So yeah, that's right, and, and and in no way underplaying the gravity of no, no, dealing with not. the serious issues yeah. that are there. Uh, but I do think it's important, and you, know, you would have many political staff who uh, who tune into the podcast, and hello to you all. And and you know what I you know, the message I'd want to give to them is that you know, whether you're working for the government or the opposition or a minor party. And we do know that the vast majority, nearly everyone, frankly, you know, turns up, uh, gives their all, all, works incredibly hard um, uh, and is deserving of uh, the respect, certainly, of the members of parliament and senators who have the honour of working in this place. But, you know, frankly, probably the respect that you know, they may never really get an acknowledgement from the rest of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, we no. rely on parliamentary staff as much as we do the public service to make sure that uh, that the, the country is well run. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you said that. I think that's quite important because there are a lot of uh, people who have, yeah, been in all kinds of distress. So thank you for saying that. Uh, in terms of, though, we got a big agenda uh, going forward and please don't throw a blanket on this by saying we've got the, the Jenkins inquiry. I'm genuinely interested in your view. Uh, without preempting what Kate Jenkins comes up with at the end of a no doubt very rigorous process and a, pro a widely consultative process, I think everybody agrees uh, that the, the HR function in this building governing political staff is inadequate. The power relationships are wrong. That, that staff in this building don't have normal workplace HR powers to that, that I would have. If I bully my team in here, you know, any, any of them could go to the editor and complain about me, could go to, to HR and complain about me. Um, Normalised processes like that do not cover parliamentary staff. Do you think if Kate Jenkins comes up with a recommendation at the end of this that we need a more normalised HR function and we need it to be independent from principals such as yourself in offices who are the employers of these people, do you think that the government's going to have the bottle to go for that? Because it's a big, big shift in the power dynamic. Yeah, look, I think there is a firm willingness to, to look at anything that Kate recommends with very much an open mind and to, to work through those issues. It is a unique workplace on 
on a range of levels and its unique aspects start with the fact that uh, that constitutionally you've got 227 effective employers as members of parliament and senators put to, put into this building um, who are voted on by the Australian people, put here and empowered in a constitutional position to uh, to hold that office and hold that office until such time as uh, as the Australian people remove them. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it's not quite uh, a normal workplace where you know, the boss is ultimately you know, subject to practices that are not protected by a constitution and to, uh, to normal workplace laws. And so they are some of the challenges I know that, that Kate will grapple with in terms of her recommendations and the work that she does. But there's a, uh, there are the cultural issues and then the practice issues to, uh, to address and Clearly, they're interconnected, um, uh, and you you achieve effective change by making sure that uh, culture changes, and yeah, and that changes by virtue of a range of things. And accountability um, is uh, is one of those. Um, yeah, training and expectations around workplace management are some of those. And uh, and I would fully expect that uh, that you know, Kate will come up with recommendations seeking to have um, uh, a um, an arrangement in dealing with um, workplace bullying, sexual harassment, assault, and and otherwise that you know, that clearly expects more in terms of how people are trained, including members and senators, um, the transparency and accountability of processes to handle complaints and issues, um, and the independence of those processes along the way, and that we will have to um, we will have to respond. Uh, in a constructive way uh, to those recommendations, but I I also know that I that Kate understands the the difference in work this workplace just as her other reviews and it's why we've got her to to do this work have other unique factors uh, when she did work for the Australian Defence Force again chain of command principles and so on are, are clearly important in a defence force. Yeah. She had to weigh those. She's just completed her work in relation to Gymnastics yeah, Australia. Yeah, I haven't read that and, yet, but looks, uh, looks and, amazing. Mm. And you know, again, you know, sporting organisations, you know, a lot of volunteer engagement and so on. Again, different parameters as to, as to um, how you handle the response. Um, but ultimately, yeah, culture... And then the practices that drive that culture are, are what you know, you've got to achieve the optimal outcomes for in in any of these environments. And uh, and the parliament you know, should be one that sets the highest of standards for the rest of the country to follow. And that's the aspiration. Mm. Mm, last question, and and I don't mean this. Uh, I don't mean this as a personal question, mm. even though it's about you. It seems sort of stupid thing to say, but you'll understand what I mean by this. I don't. Um, uh, has has the events of the last few months made you an employer in your office at per, responsible for the welfare of people has it made you check yourself um i think it's absolutely given cause for self reflection um there's there's been a publicized case in uh, in relation to uh, somebody who used to work in my office um who subsequently went to the media some years after leaving my employment and uh, that was the first that I'd learnt of apparent issues that had occurred outside of the workplace but between two former staff Uh, and obviously sort of reflecting on that personal case and the breadth of other issues. You you think about, well, 
how and what can I do as well as how do I build a better system that would give somebody the confidence to come to me or to go to an independent voice at a much earlier stage when issues can be resolved and when help can be provided um, rather than the, the prospect of years later it bubbling up in the media and everyone thinking, well, how do you provide a, a resolution at this point in time? Um, and, uh, and I've had the opportunity to, to talk to, to that former staff member and to, uh, and to a number of others with personal cases along the way. And, uh, and they, you know, they do confront you and, uh, and cause you to, to, as I say, self-reflect and think, well, you know, how could I do better? Um, as at the same time as you're thinking as the finance minister, how do I ensure the system does yes, better in does the future better as, as well. well? Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, because clearly you are not an ogre. <laughs> but hopefully not. No, well, clearly you're not, right? But yeah. and I, and I wasn't. Um... Not that there's anything wrong with Shrek either. Sorry, seems, sorry. seems reasonable 30 <laughs> minutes in really to get to a Shrek reference. But no, um, you're not an ogre. You're not known for being an ogre. It, that wasn't a passive way of me asking you about Chelsea Potter. I meant mm. it in a, in a broader no. sense. I would ask anybody in this room yeah. at the moment, Ryan. But you did raise Chelsea Potter's incident though. Um, so it's, yeah. Has it, have you, have you changed anything? Um. I've had numerous discussions you know, with my staff, and and frankly, they're probably discussions that I've that I've not historically had in terms of uh, both trying to um, you know, remind of, of the standards that are expected. Although I I like to think that the people who've worked in my office have had a, a strong appreciation of, of the standards and ethics expected through the uh, through the years, but also um, the supports that are available uh, and the options that are available to them and probably have had more upfront conversations uh, across my ministerial office and my electorate office about um, what those options and what those choices are for people so that they uh, know that it's not just an internal option, that there are external options for help and support and investigation available to them, but also internally that they know that there are a range of choices in terms of who they can talk to um, and who has an understanding of the the systems that uh, that are in place and look i I have no doubt that there's plenty more that I can learn and uh, and you know I'm grateful for the fact that Kate Jenkins has agreed to do this work because in in working alongside of Kate, although her review is you know, completely independent. She has all the powers to, to make her own recommendations. But in working alongside her, I've got no doubt that there'll be plenty more that, that I'll learn that may well influence my practices in, in this job or whatever I do in the future too. Yeah, and I, I, to, I stress I wasn't setting this up as a, a personal self-criticism anyway. Thank you. It's uh, it's the week before budget. You've just uh, made 40 minutes to have a decent conversation with me. I'm very grateful for that. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of this show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard, who often cuts it. Thank you to you guys for listening. Do all the usual things. Share, sh- you know, tell your friends, etc. Uh, share the podcast around uh, Budget Week next week. We'll be back then. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.